This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so fired up for today because we have Brendan Lacerda. He is the director and economist at Moody's Analytics out of Philadelphia. He lives in Philadelphia. Yeah. I feel like Moody's Moody's is worldwide. Yeah, he focused, well, economy.com. How do you get economy.com? When you're Moody's, that's how you get economy.com. I guess so. I guess you buy it. Imagine being the first guy, though, to check if it's available and just it's lucky. <laughs> Didn't think that was how it happened. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. anyways, Brendan's on the program. This is amazing. I'm so excited for today because really we are talking about such a moment in the market right now. Um, we just saw and last the global week, economy and the global economy, right? Who better than Brendan to come on and talk about the Canadian economy, Canadian real estate in general, and then what his thoughts on the Vancouver real estate market. And a, a few things to note. One is... Brendan lives in Philadelphia, is from the United States originally, and his position has always been to focus at least partially on Canada. So there's a nice compare and contrast element to his analysis, I think, that's really unique and really interesting. And of course, Moody's is a forecasting outfit, right? That's their entire uh, the entire reason they exist. Right. So it's so great to have somebody who's thinking big picture about not only the Canadian economy, but the global economy to come on and talk about the Canadian economy and the local economy and housing. Right. And he's not afraid to put his neck on the line. He talks about how long the recession, if there is a recession, is going to last, where interest rates are going to go. Some surprising takeaways, I I feel, uh, will come out of this episode. Yeah, I feel like we laughed and we cried. And then we laughed again. And then I hurled. That had nothing (laughs) to do with the show. But here's, here's an interesting thing, too, before we get to this conversation with Brendan. We were just recently featured, and this is a true honor, but good friend of the show, Clint Murphy, who is uh, pretty big Fast on Twitter. guest fan favorite as well. Yeah. Honey, Fat fire. So Clint is a guy you turn to if you're looking for education and growth. He's big in that sphere, right? And he's on Twitter. He's got over 150,000 followers. He put us on a top 10 podcast that will accelerate your growth list. And we are with some heavy hitters there. I and, think uh, we're the maybe the only Canadian podcast. Apparently, it was voted in. Anyways, here's what I will say about it. We've been on a lot of podcast lists over the years, and we appreciate all of them. But this one was truly meaningful uh, just because I feel like Clint uh, has a good read on 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 the podcasts out there. And uh, yeah, it makes me very happy that Clint finds this podcast useful. And well, some of his followers or, or whoever did the voting. It was uh, voted. I it mean, this voted. is we, we're in company there with what Tim Ferriss. No big deal. Lex Friedman. No big deal. Uh, guys, guys on our speed dial. But, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Anyways, Matt, what else do we have before this conversation with Brendan Lacerda? You know what? We, we there's not a lot else to talk about. The shirts are in. Oh, the shirts. Yeah, of course. Oh, you're yeah right. This is uh the shirts are in. 
if you want to see them, we're going to be putting some stuff on Instagram, I think. Is that right. what the plan is? We'll be putting some stuff on Instagram. There'll probably be some contests on Instagram to get your own V-Rep shirt. There's two different shirts that we uh, they have are, currently. The only they're criticism hit. we've heard is that they're almost too California, which actually I take as a compliment. Too Kokomo, I think, too was, Kokomo, the, uh, was right. the critique. But can you be too Kokomo? Exactly. That's... I, that's exactly it. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. Build more housing live from Kokomo Studios. These are they're they're beautiful shirts and good quality. Very very good quality shirts. We are going to be talking about how you can get your own V Rep shirt. So stay tuned for that. We'd love to get people in the V Rep community their own shirt that they can wear around town and uh, spread the word. And the podcast is growing. I should say our numbers are up substantially. So thank you. If you do appreciate this show, the one thing you can do is either review us where you listen to the program. Or you can share the podcast with a friend if you think it's useful for someone. Please do send it on. Please help us grow. And Matt, without further ado, let's cut to our conversation with Brendan Lacerda. So good to have him back on after a two-year stint. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam, with 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds. Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehaus. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Brendan Lacerda. He is the director and economist at Moody's Analytics. How are you doing, Brendan? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Pr- pretty good. Yeah, we should say past guest fan favorite, uh, but it's been a while. It's been quite a while. I guess um, we last spoke around the start of the pandemic. Yes. So, so a couple things have changed, <laughs> uh, but uh, but before we get into it, Brendan, for our, our listeners who didn't hear you, I believe this is your third appearance on the show over the years, but for listeners that didn't hear past episodes, can you maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a director of economics at Moody's Analytics. What we do is we build economic models to produce economic forecasts. and. You know, one of the advantages, you can take those models and we can construct sort of hypothetical alternative scenarios. So very often, you know, what I'm spending my day, you know, my day-to-day doing is working with banks, major financial institutions to run through those, you know, ugly hypothetical scenarios and stress test their balance sheets and see if, you know, they're going to be able to survive the next crisis. Has there been a more exciting time? or exhilarating time to be in your business than, than right now? Or depressing? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I tell folks there's never been a busier time uh, in the forecasting business because the, the volatility, you know, you wake up the next morning and it seems like the world has changed on you. So uh, with events changing on the ground so fast, you constantly, you know, looking through the forecast, trying to get it right. It's hard. Well, well, maybe we'll start, Brendan, by, and we kind of referenced it already, but last time you were on the show, it was early COVID. And I think you you provided uh, a forecast for for Canadian housing and and kind of where we're at and where we were headed. And uh, it's funny; it sounds like it's been on your mind a little bit. I don't think you go to bed thinking about the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. But I'm curious. Maybe can you walk us through that past forecast and and where you got it right and and where you got it wrong? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, for the listeners, um, when you guys sent me the invitation to come on, I said, you know, under one condition that I, I had to issue a mea culpa for my poor forecast for the housing market at the start of the pandemic. You know, in the very early days, like March or April, and you know, obviously fears were were really high, and I issued a very you know, pessimistic outlook for the housing market. And in terms of prices, you know, that, that's obviously turned out to be you know quite quite the opposite. But you know, I'd say two things here. You know, one, you know, don't don't trust a forecaster that isn't honest about their mistakes. And and the second thing is, it's really useful to look back at those past errors and ask yourself, you know, why did I screw up? And you know, going through the list of reasons, you know, I'll say first, you know, interest rates. Yeah, that was that was an easy call. You know, obviously the Bank of Canada was going to slash interest rates. Unemployment, you know, remember skyrocketed, you know, up to thirteen, fourteen percent. I would say on that front, you know, we were. A little too pessimistic about how quickly things were going to improve. Thinking back to the start of the pandemic, you know, it, it definitely was not clear that you know we were going to get these really effective vaccines. You know, basically one year from the start. You know, imagine what the economy would look like right now if we had you know we're just getting vaccines today. How long could businesses have hung on for? You know, how long could the government have kept pumping money into the economy? You can see how we get towards a much more negative housing outlook. And I, I touched on it there for a second, but where we really missed was in terms of the policy response. Our assumptions, I would say, were much more jaded based on the experience of 2008 and 2009, where governments the world over did not provide enough stimulus. You know, that was one of the clear lessons from that crisis. Fast forward to you know two years ago, I think looking back now, it's, it's probably more clear that Past mistakes. This time we went overboard. I was looking at some numbers earlier today. You know, if if you add up all the government stimulus spending, it was equal to about like fourteen percent of pre-pandemic GDP. That's how much of the economy the government replaced. On, on the on the Bank of Canada front, you know, the really shocking statistic is not like you know what they did with interest rates, but on their balance sheet. You know, they had about a hundred billion in assets to start the crisis with. They expanded their balance sheet by about $500 billion, creating that out of thin air to you know, boost the financial system, improve liquidity, keep financial markets functioning. We did not expect that level of support. And one more thing I'll throw in, the mortgage deferral program. At the peak of its operation, the mortgage deferral program was deferring about 14% of accounts nationally, people who you know, were, were temporarily paused on their payments. It, it looks like about two thirds of those people were, you know, actually in real trouble and couldn't make their payments. But you know, a, a striking number of people um, were, were in serious financial trouble. But you know, fortunately, all that support, you know, turned the economy 
around really quickly and you know poured fuel you know poured gasoline on the housing market but you know looking back i think the first comment we'll make about the difficulty of forecasting is trying to figure out you know what the government and the policymakers are going to do you know when conditions pivot as they are right now mm-hmm. Would you say that now is an easier moment to forecast, a, a harder moment to forecast, or, or equally challenging? Not as challenging. Two years ago, it was a combination of, you know, how is the virus going to evolve? How is the policy response going to evolve? Right now in the current environment, I would say there's, there's a lot more, there's less uncertainty about the virus. There's a lot more uncertainty about policy. And you know, it's it's really this time around. It's not really fiscal policy. You know, there's there's some questions about you know how high is the Bank of Canada going to go on rates. Uh, but, but when I talk about sort of the policy uncertainty, uh, I'm extending that out to you know Russia, Ukraine, you know China, Taiwan. Um, you know, what is the UK doing right now? What is how is the European Union responding to this potential energy crisis this winter? There's a lot of policy question marks on the table that are making forecasting really challenging. You know, maybe going back to the Canadian response, because you talked about stimulus, interest rates, the uh, mortgage deferral program, and a host of other things that that the Canadian government did during early days of COVID, and I guess through the last couple of years. Can we put that in a, a broader context? Like, do you? Th- I guess two questions. One is, did Canadian policymakers get it right? What did they get wrong? Did they go too far? kind of thing in terms of the last couple of years. But then also, like, how different was Canada's response from, say, the U.S. and, and other other G7 nations? Yeah, um, let's put the magnitude of Canada's response in context first. Canada is, when you add it all up, um, way up near the high end of, of spending as a share of GDP. So the, the United States was actually number one in terms of stimulus provided. And Canada's Roughly up there in like the top five or so, and then plus you have to figure, you know, there is some of the spillover benefit from whatever the U.S. is spending. So, yeah, the, the Canadian government response was very strong in relative terms. In terms of you know some of the design of the programs, it was actually you know surprising to see that you know the governments the world over largely followed the same blueprint. You know, you had the wage subsidy scheme up in Canada to, you know, give money to employers to pay workers' wages. In the United States, we had the the PPP loan program, where they weren't loans at all; they were government was just giving money to businesses uh, to make payroll. We also had a you know a, a massive expansion uh, in, in in the generosity and eligibility for unemployment benefits, same as there was in Canada. Uh, mortgage deferral programs, you know, we had the same things. So yeah, it was it was interesting, and even in Europe, they deployed a lot of the same measures. So a lot of variation in the magnitude of the response, uh, but the programs were the same. You know, if you're wondering, you know, who was on the the short side of of the stimulus, um, Europe was not as robust. You know, but that reflects they have tighter budgets. You know, they don't have their balance sheet was in a lot uglier shape at the start of the pandemic. So certainly, one of the things that helped Canada. Was that the government finances were in you know pretty good shape at the start of things, less so nowadays. <laughs> and also, you know, China uh, did not deploy a lot of stimulus, but that that mostly has to do with sort of idiosyncratic concerns within their own economy about um, you know they they have their own housing market problems at the moment. So 
they had their own issues to deal with, so they didn't uh, respond the same way the U.S. and Canada did. So, so Brendan, there seems to be a lot of talk right now about uh, regime change in discussions around the central banks. Do you see 2022 as kind of a fundamental shift in the approach of the central banks? Well, certainly, you know, any crisis sort of invites the question of, are we doing this the right way? You know, is this the appropriate policy prescription? You know, in terms of, you know, what is the Bank of Canada's you know, methodology for controlling inflation? You know, it's, it's interest rate targeting. There are other ways, there, there are other you know, methods people have come up with and everything of that sort. But there's been some sort of review of things and, you know, everyone's kind of has mixed opinions and it doesn't seem like there's obviously, you know, a, a better way forward or, or like a better way to do things. But, you know, a lot of the criticism that's being directed at central banks now is stemming from the fact that, you know, on in, inflation just, you know, accelerated dramatically. And yeah, there's some merit to the, to the critique that, you know, they were too slow in responding initially. And, you know, it's funny because we, I often think of people we had on the show in late last year and, and just general conversation, you know, with actually with economists and with industry professionals about kind of low rates forever, maybe the, the new normal, definitely variable, <laughs> uh, variable mortgage rate being, being the smart choice. And it really feels like nobody saw this, this level. I, I guess we were talking about, you know, inflation, you know, not, not for the long term. But this seems to have caught everybody off guard. Like, were you guys, in hindsight, thinking about the the amount of government stimulus and spending, it seems like inflation is obvious. But were you seeing that, say, a year ago? I want to say one thing first, which is, I would say, you know, the stimulus provided the initial spark. But what really amplified things was uh, the wreckage that, you know, the, the disruptions that COVID-19 caused the global supply chain. It became extremely costly, timely to move goods around the globe. And that, you know, is what really started to send inflation soaring. So that was sort of the second wave of inflation. And then the third wave came, you know, following, following the military conflict in Eastern Europe. And you know, then we had energy and food prices explode. So it's almost like, you know, where inflation we're at now is sort of the, the culmination of three price shocks throughout this crisis. But then to the question of, yeah, yeah, like in this new environment, you know, we're now questioning, you know, like what, what's normal? What's normal going to be like? You know, what's it going to look like on the other side of this? You know, if, if, if you crack your macroeconomics textbook open and, you know, you sort of follow the instruction there without getting too much into the details, roughly we would say like the equilibrium, the long-term equilibrium for the Bank of Canada's policy rate is exactly where it is right now at two and a half percent. Now, the problem is, you know, a lot of the private rates out there, you know, like mortgages and, you know, so other private lending rates are baking in the idea that, you know, that policy rate's going to go even higher, which, which it clearly is. So what we say is, you know, we're going to overshoot on policy, uh, which means, you know, we're going to bring the rate high in order to bring inflation down faster. But, you know, it, rates will sort of normalize back down from these levels. And so I guess in thinking about that, does, does history provide an accurate guide for this current moment? And, and I, I want to give an example because there's a lot of professionals or industry professionals in, in, in the real estate industry and in the mortgage industry pointing to 30-year charts that suggest that 
when we see steep interest rate increases, they're almost always followed by these significant decreases. Is there anything different about this moment or is that is that kind of the trajectory we're on? Is there any sign for optimism around cheaper money <laughs> is what we're asking <laughs> coming in the next yeah, say, yeah, two yeah. years? So I'll actually turn away from Canada for a second and talk about the U.S. because the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, just made some comments the other day. And then they issued the, like a new interest rate forecast. And they said, you know, they're going to bring you know, the Fed's policy rate to you know, four and a quarter. And then by the end of 2023, and then they expect by, by the end of 2024, you know, the policy rate will still be at four and a quarter, you know, four and a third. Now, I look at that forecast and I, I, I can't believe that, you know, for, for, this re- for this reason, that if you push the policy rate to four and a quarter, you know, that's roughly going to imply a mortgage rate of about like seven and a quarter. I don't think the housing market can withstand a, a seven and a quarter mortgage rate. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, conditions are already pretty weak, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of updating our, our baseline forecast right now. And I have to make some adjustments and put in some higher interest rates for the Bank of Canada. And, you know, we're already very, very close to a recession. And when I make these changes, you know, there's a good chance my next baseline forecast you know, might have a very you know, mild recession in it for Canada. The, the reason I bring this up is because you know, if, if the macro conditions are deteriorating like that, that there's no way these banks can maintain you know, overnight rates above 4%. So to your point, like, why do we see in history that you know, rates go up and then they quickly come back down is because you know, once the policy rate goes above 2.5%, that starts destroying demand, you know, demand destruction. So the economy is going to start getting weaker and weaker and weaker the longer rates persist above that level. And so there's no way they can maintain that point for two years. That, that that's really strains believability. So so in your mind, is it Jerome Powell, is it a game of chicken here? Like or poker where where it's uh, you know, who's gonna blink first type type thing in terms of talking out to twenty twenty four? It makes me think of the Bank of Canada. I think it was Tiff Macklem early on or maybe midway through the the pandemic saying that rates would be held low well into 2023. I mean, it seems like these guys say one thing and, and then the world happens, right? It, do you think this is just a case of of chicken? We always thought interest rates were too low in our baseline forecast. And it's always been, you know, because when you know people you know look at our forecast, you know they obviously compare it to you know our competitors and other forecasters, and we always got the criticism like you have rates rising too fast, like this isn't this isn't going to happen, and we get tons of pushback on that. You know, no one's pushing back on that anymore. <laughs> uh, we we I mean I'll admit you know we were right about the speed of the rate increases, but we thought you know they were going to be able to stay lower for longer. So at least that part of it you know did surprise us that they had to you know change plans and, and, and act sooner. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like I said, you know, a big part of what the bank is trying to do right now is, you know, bring down inflation expectations using their language you know, of the press releases, of the press conferences. You know, essentially trying to, you know, talk the markets into, you know, calming down. Statements like, you know, we're committed to fighting inflation. You know, we're, we're, we're going to contain this. Because if, if inflation expectations become unanchored, 
And that's a very sort of technical way of saying, you know, what if the idea sets into people's mind that price increases are going to be really high for a really long time out into the future? If that happens, you know, as a business, trying to set prices becomes really challenging. You know, as a worker, you know, trying to negotiate, you know, a, a raise or your wage becomes really challenging. So when you get into these environments where prices are rising really fast, it it screws up business activity and planning and all these things. So that's why the bank is very aware of those dangers and it's why you know the focus at the moment is really trying to keep those long run inflation expectations you know, contained and, and down. And the the way they're doing that is sort of going overboard at the moment. And, and so Brendan I'm just wondering how in in terms of maybe just the next 2-3 years like two things strike me one is there's this 2% inflation goal which we're nowhere near and there seems like if we're not in a recession we're on the cusp of one and there's the the pessimism kind of generally out there is 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 pretty widespread like how how does this play out over the next how does 2023 look and into 2024 do we is if is it stagflation? Like does inflation remain high and the economy's in shambles? Like what does this what does this look like? And then I guess what do you think the response or the appropriate response or the or the response that actually will the Bank of Canada or uh, central banks more generally will take? One point which is is really important to make right now, and and this is not me. This is you know all the economic literature. The full effect of a change. In the Bank of Canada's interest rate and you know, those policy rates, that can take nine months to two years to realize its full effect. So a lot of the tightening that we've seen so far, the reason you know we're talking about you know possible recessions is because a lot of that pain is going to come to bear in 2023, early 2023. Do so you think you know the sort of this rapid tightening cycle started? You know, spring, summer, and really the full weight of it is going to be felt really not till next year. Which, which raises the point of, and you know, uh, we've been talking about the Bank of Canada policy and inflation. I am concerned that going forward, you know, the Bank of Canada needs to be a little more cautious about you know, how high and how fast they go. You know, there is a risk of you know, a policy error where you're not getting the effect you want right now. So, you know, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, you know, not realizing that, you know, the full weight of it's going to come crashing down, uh, you know, months, months down the road. So I would actually, you know, even though I think, you know, even though I'm putting in my forecast that I, I think the policy rate's going to peak at 4.25%, if it actually fell to me to make that decision, I, I might actually, you know, lean more towards the a lot of you know what's happening with inflation, you know, we can't control at the moment, and to some degree, we have to ride it out and, and hope that the actions we've already taken you know, will do a lot of the work to bring inflation down. In terms of yeah, a lot of people throw out this idea of like a, you know, a stagflation scenario. The only reason I would throw cold water on that idea is you know we have the experience of the '70s and '80s, you know, so we know what that's like, and listening to the statements of the policymakers, there's a clear, clear directive object, you know, that they don't want to go in that direction. So the challenge is, you know, if, if inflation goes up and unemployment goes up, 
then you're in a trap and you're you're forced to you know keep raising interest rates and then you know you have a really really bad unemployment situation. So the general idea is it's better to you know pay the price now, raise interest rates now, you know, which is you know would cause unemployment to rise and contain inflation now, you know rather than getting into that situation where it's gotten out of hand. So policymakers clearly would prefer a recession over a stagflation scenario. Right. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. So Brendan, are you, are you afraid for the Canadian economy? And maybe more specifically, uh, Canadian housing. Um, you know, we can talk about the Canadian economy first. I think you know we just talked about these unemployment. You know, a, a second ago, the economy's ability to withstand these interest rate increases, you know, will hinge on the health of the labor market. Um, you know, as long as you're you know still getting your income, you can kind of try to you know move around your you know household balance sheet or your expenses to to make things work. So the dangerous scenario is, you know, if, if you know unemployment really you know starts climbing up, I would say, however, you know, given the sort of multitude of risks you know facing the global economy, a lot of them aren't squarely directed at Canada. Um, you know, so to the extent that you know there's problems in Russia and Ukraine and commodity prices spike, well, there's a there's a little bit of hurt, but there's also a little bit of benefit in that for Canada. You know, there's not a ton of trade, you know, with the Asian economies. There's not, you know, a huge potential, you know, fallout from anything over there. But, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, if the economy does slip into a recession, 
there's no indication that it's going to be you know particularly bad compared to you know, previous expe- uh, recessions that we've experienced. So I, I don't know if that's the, the silver lining or... I'll take it. Not great news. <laughs> take something. One of, the thing, one of the reports that we published is this risk matrix that looks at you know, the probability of risks versus you know, the, the potential severity of the shock. Um, and, and one of the ones I've always had you know, high up on the board is the crisis of over-leveraged households in Canada. You know, we, we've always talked for, a, you know, everyone's always talked for a long time about, you know, Canadians, you know, debt to income ratios are you know, quite high compared to a lot of other countries. But I guess the more troubling thing is that there's, there's, there's really no indication that that sort of appetite for debt has, has slowed down much. So, you know, if, if, if you're looking for sort of you know, scary numbers out there, the Bank of Canada publishes this quarterly financial system review. And they started including data in there on the number of newly issued mortgages with loan-to-income ratios over 450%. If, if you're trying to sort of figure out what exactly that means, I, I ran a little bit of the numbers. So median home price in Canada right now, 872000 20% down would mean you have a loan of about 700000 So if your LTI is at 450%, you know, that means your household income is 155,000. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think a household, a family whose total income is 155,000 should buy a house that costs 872,000. That's the definition of overleveraged. And what sort of I said before, you know, it seems like people's appetite for, you know, debt hasn't diminished. The latest data point we have, which is the first quarter of 2022, something like, you know, nearly you know 20 to 25 percent of all the newly issued mortgages had LTIs over 450 percent. So their huge share of these mortgages going out right now are are really big. And so the question becomes like, okay, when when does this become you know a very you know really precarious issue? Now those mortgages were probably taken out at you know like. Three low three percent rates. You know the real question is when they have to you know refinance or you know they adjust to a new mortgage rate you know, five years down the road. What is the mortgage rate going to be at that date? And then what does their monthly payment become? That's sort of a little bit of the uncomfortable. You know, it gives me a little bit of a you know, keep me up at night. You know, it's more thinking more farther down the road. It's like what is what is the imp- long term implication of this really, you know, um, significant amount of credit growth going on right now, or, you know, more a year ago. And your thinking here is, I guess, twofold. One is a lot of those people have fixed rate mortgages in which they're going to come to have to get a new term in 2024, 2025, 2026. So it's potentially then when the rubber hits the road, but then presumably these rate increases just on debt levels, like monthly payments are going up across the board. And as you said earlier, it takes a while for for these interest rate increases to kind of work their way through and really impact uh, the average Canadian in kind of meaningful ways. So it does sound like you're a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those moments where I'm happy they put those B20 regulations into place and that you know they, they have been stress testing these applicants to 
you know, make sure that, you know, when, when that day comes that they're prepared for a higher interest rate. You know, that being said, to, to reiterate the point I was making before, it's, you know, it, it also not only hinges on what do interest rates look like five years from now, but, you know, what does the labor market look like five years from now? Because, you know, the last three jobs reports, you know, we, we've been losing, uh, losing jobs. And mm-hmm. sort of an axiom we, I sometimes use in the business, which is, you know, one bad number you can explain away as an anomaly. You know, two bad numbers is a coincidence. The three bad numbers, well, now you're worried that, you know, the, the, the trend is starting to take hold. So, so I'm just thinking back to, to our talk from early 2020, and I feel like there was a, and I'm, I'm working from memory more so than anything else, but I often think that of a model I believe you had where you basically had to plug in unemployment numbers in order to to come to housing increase or decrease. Does that sound familiar to you? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was. Uh, that, that's still, you know, the model we used. I would say the reason it didn't work before is because all the government stimulus payments essentially disconnected unemployment from house prices. But as it stands right now, you know, I don't have any stimulus baked into the forecast, and you know, I don't think that the government's going to come to the rescue if you know the housing market starts to wobble. So, so what? Can we get to some projections? I'm curious to, I don't know if I yeah. want to hear these, but, um, but what are you seeing? Yeah, I guess despite the pessimistic tone I've taken so far, our current house price projection is that prices will be down about 10% by the end of 2023, early 2024. And that's about the bottom. Sorry, the now, bottom is you know, down, down 10%. Down 10% and, and where, when does that? 2024. 20, early 2024. Yeah. So, for typically for stress, we use you know like a, a peak to trough method. So the peak in prices looked like it was maybe about two months ago. So going from that peak till you know the bottom where our forecast has it in early 2023, 2024, it's about a 10% drop. But the point that's worth you know reiterating is that 10% drop is coming after two years where we got a 50% increase. Mm-hmm. And that's in that's in Canadian real estate, generally speaking, correct? That is like a if we took like a national median measure, right? And can we talk about how Vancouver fares in the in the Canadian context? Yeah, I I, I should have pulled the the Vancouver numbers in front of me, um, but last I looked at them, Vancouver typically fares slightly worse. And the reason for that, and, and something I've been you know, hammering in our our recent research note is thinking about the housing outlook, if you want to, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying it, I would say affordability is king. That the markets with the worst affordability in this environment with rising interest rates and you know, labor market getting a little bit shakier, definitely under the most threat. Because you, know, you, you can do the mortgage math and you know, the, the increase in the monthly payments on you know, the median home with interest rates high, you know, people are going to be even more sensitive to issues of affordability. And they're going to be even sort of more fearful that those lofty Vancouver valuations, you know, may be you know, more susceptible to eroding. So overall, I, I, I can't quote an exact number at the moment, but I do recall our, our Vancouver forecast tends to be a little worse uh, than the national average. So, so Brendan, so somebody out there is thinking, you know, Vancouver, we have land constraints, we have supply constraints, um, we've had historically low inventory, 
And then on top of that, um, we have record numbers of immigration coming to Canada. A lot of them potentially going to be settling in the lower mainland. Is this a valid argument from your perspective, or, or do you think that's not that's not going to have an impact on on stabilizing the uh, market here? Uh, no, it, it has a lot of merit. I I would emphasize the issue with inventories, and in in terms of our forecast, that's what really puts a floor under values and you know, prevents that type of scenario. You know, I've, I've seen some forecasters out there, you know, talk about, you know, 20, 30% declines or something astronomical like that. The reason we don't go there is for exactly that issue, that, that the inventory of homes for sale is too, too thin. That being said, you know, the number of units currently under construction in Canada is at an all-time record high, orders of magnitude, you know, higher than like it's ever been. Those, you know, I've been hearing, you know, most of those units are pre-sold, but, you know, I guess depending on, you know, what the, the owner's plan is, you know, if they're planning to, you know, occupy that soon to be finished unit. That does mean they have to sell their old home potentially. So there's a question of like, you know, how much supply is going to come on the market over the next year? You know, are there buyers out there who, you know, have been waiting to sell because they were waiting for, you know, that top to come into the market? I'm not very, you know, uh, I don't put a ton of stock in, in, in that argument. Um, and I think our, our general view is that because the inventory of homes for sale is going to stay pretty weak, that we don't get too much of a, a decline in prices. So, so one thing, Brendan, I'm just thinking of here is 10% decline, potentially a little bit more in Vancouver, trough early 2024 or, or late next year. But one other thing you said that's sticking with me and probably most of the listeners is how highly leveraged most Canadians are, and especially in markets like like Vancouver, where that $872,000 home sounds cheap. So, so putting those two things together and thinking about a lot of fixed rate mortgages coming up in 2025-26, can we play out the next, say... You know, and again, I, I know uh, employment numbers seem to be obviously very important in your modeling, but if we just play out higher interest rates and this <laughs> this kind of timeline, like are we in for kind of a, a sideways decade here in your mind? Like what if best case or best prediction in terms of like next two, five, 10 year Canadian housing forecast? No, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, Definitely not the the lost decade or, or something you know you, you might imagine. Um, the, the timing of things roughly goes that you know 2023 is is the tough year. That's that's when we expect you know most of the declines to take place. And you know as we were talking about before, you know it's hard for the Bank of Canada to maintain these high rates for very long because the economy is going to be weakening. And as you see in the historical data, it's you know, there's usually a lot of these like quick reversals. So a part of our forecast is once those interest rates start to reverse, buyer sentiment will start to improve. Once people see rates start coming down, you will hear sort of a, a you know, breath of relief and house prices start appreciating again. So we return to you know, appreciation in, in you know, 2024, late 2024. And you know, after that point, you know, it's roughly sort of a historical trend kind of picture. And for a lot of the reasons you said, you know, Canada has a strong economy, really high immigration, a lot of 
know, Canada's big cities, uh, which are going to carry a lot of weight in the house price indices that we're looking at, you know, very dynamic growing economies. So there's no reason, I think, to you know, develop a really sort of grim long-term outlook for Canada. Because as we were sort of alluding to before, I, I think if this issue of overleveraged households really starts to become problematic, given the threat that it poses, I think there, there will be some government intervention. And if we want to put you know, sort of one thing on the table, I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear maybe you know, more and more talk in Canada of you know, something similar to the, the you know, 25, 30-year fixed mortgages that we have in the United States. You know, trying to you know, give a, you know, take that interest rate volatility, that interest rate of risk away from households and actually put it like back on the banks. Interesting. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if I wouldn't be surprised down the road if Canada actually went in that direction because of the situation that's developing sort of at this moment. Right. And, and I know there's been some talk recently about pushing on amortizations. I think OSFI's put some cold water on that one for the time being, but uh, I guess there is some, there, there are some tools in the toolbox. You did, uh, Brendan, just, uh, I guess, speak to some optimism there in my mind. Uh, I was going to end with a question about, you know, usually we talk about what are the biggest risks you see. I feel like this whole conversation has centered around the risk, so we maybe don't have to, to beat that drum, but do you see signs for optimism? And you kind of just alluded to, to some, but can we leave on a positive note? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if, you know, the, the pandemic was clearly, you know, absolutely like awful, but, but looking back on that home experience, one of the really positive things to emerge from that is this remote work, hybrid work. You know, this has the chance to be, to some degree, you know, cure some of the housing affordability problems. It has, I can also probably play a role in, you know, increasing efficiency. Also, you know, if you, you know, sort of allow people sort of more freedom to, you know, live where they prefer rather than, you know, where their work requires them to, sort of, I think you can expect some overall increase in happiness. So I think we're still in the infancy of the positive spillover benefits that are going to emerge from the transition towards more hybrid work and remote work. Well, well, maybe we'll leave it there, but but Brendan, we do have this segment called the Five Wire, five quick questions, lighthearted questions to end the show. Can you stick around uh, to, for those? Absolutely. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay. So uh, question number one is, what is one book you would recommend that our listeners uh, read? I would actually recommend the, uh, the Elegant Universe by Brian Greene. It's a book about like physics and like relativity and like Einstein. And it'll just, it'll open your mind to sort of how crazy this universe is. Oh, interesting. All right. So if you're, if you're caught. I have my pleasure reading. I have to read non-economic stuff. You know, you have to step away from work. I was going to say, if you're in the, (laughs) yeah, if you're spending all day in the details, that's uh, that's probably a welcome reprieve there. 
you're on death row, Brendan. What's your last meal? Oh, you know, I would say veal parmesan. I don't know. It's always my absolute favorite. <laughs> nice. What have you been binge watching lately uh, or a movie recommendation? Oh, a movie recommendation. You know what? I, I would actually say I will tell people, you know, that the new Game of Thrones series that came out, you know, if, if you were, if you had a bad taste in your mouth from the way, you know, the previous seasons ended, you know, obviously it was bad. But the new show, you know, it's good. It actually turned it around. I would say it's actually a lot better uh, than I was expecting. It certainly exceeded my expectations. So, yeah, definitely tune back into the Game of Thrones. It's worth a revisit. It's actually apparently now uh, they're breaking records with uh, the numbers uh, that they're getting on on this new show. It's like, what is it, House of Dragons or something? Yeah, I'm sure like, you know, plenty of people out there are already watching it. But I just want to say to the people that are jaded and, you know, you stopped watching because <laughs> the original series ended so badly. Don't worry. Tune back in. It's good. Right on. Uh, favorite band or music? And and Brendan, I wish we would ask uh, uh, at the start, but where are you right now? Are you in the kind of D.C. area? I'm trying to remember. Philadelphia? I'm in, I'm in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. That's nice. It. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit of a different music scene potentially, but uh, yeah, favorite band or music? What are you listening to? I'm, I'm actually like a huge fan of like uh, British new wave and like British punk rock. So like the clash is my absolute favorite band of all time. I, I it's not a, it's not a bad song on any of those albums. Nice. I feel like there's more than one economist we've talked to over the years. A lot of punk rock. To punk rock yeah. and, oh, really? and <laughs> British <laughs> punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> I want I an economist punk I, I rock band rock. is what I want. Like, yeah, <laughs> and last but not least, something that you've purchased for under $1,500 uh, recently that's had a positive impact on your life. Oh, do you know what I did? I bought, I, I bought and installed a garbage disposal in my sink. Oh, those aren't allowed and here I anymore. Can't believe... <laughs> oh, you can't get them? No. No, oh, I don't know. <laughs> but it sounds like yeah, it's, so, uh, it's pretty good. No, so, you know, I... You know, I'm an adult. I can scrape my plate into the trash can. But uh, my wife and I, we had, right at the start of the pandemic, we had twin boys. And so ever since I had like young kids now, and you know, it's like food scraps and like everything like that, you know, they have all, they don't eat anything. And yeah, the garbage disposal is, is a lifesaver. Oh, that's it. Hundred, best 150 bucks you'll ever spend. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. Well, well, Brendan, how can people find out what you're what you're doing over at Moody's? And uh, and I should say we subscribe to the newsletter at economy.com. But uh, but yeah, how can people find out what you're doing? Yeah, go to economy.com. Uh, it's really easy to remember. That's a that's our sort of main website that hosts a lot of different stuff. But if you go to economy.com, look for something called Economic View. That's where we post all of our blogs, our research articles. We talk about our forecasts, you know, what risks are on our mind at the moment. Our chief economist, Mark Zandi, does a great podcast. I, I recommend it too. And it's, it's got a lot of great stuff on there and lots of articles by me. Fantastic. Well, th thanks again for your time. That was a, a great conversation as always. And uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back. Yeah, let's, let's not wait so long. No kidding. <laughs> I thought it was in the doghouse. <laughs> hey, we'll have you back next week if you have the time. <laughs> Thanks, Brendan. All right. Oh, you're welcome, guys. Have a good one. So. 
So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Brendan Lacerda, director and economist with Moody's Analytics. Always love having Brendan on the program. It's been far too long since we had him on the show, but good to catch up. I forgot the Philadelphia component. I I think I did. I say that live that I was I was trying to remember it was he in D.C. or and then it dawned on me Philadelphia, but such right. a cool city. Well, you know, we were talking about that afterwards because if I, you know, and we might be um, maybe uh, talking outside of our wheelhouse here, but I was in Philadelphia for about five or six days, went to all bunch of different restaurants downtown, unreal vibe, lots of um, young people, lots of, uh, I would say, transplants probably. But my takeaway from talking to people locally in Philadelphia was that it's a lot of people that were in New York that moved to Philadelphia for affordability. A lot of young people anyways. So you get really cool people that have been from all over the country and have just kind of settled in the area. And then it's got a deep history as well, right? Right. That's the other thing about Philadelphia, of course. And Rocky. It's one of the older (laughs) oldest cities in the the country. And uh, yeah, it's such a cool place. So congratulations to Brendan for being there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And hopefully we get out there sometime sometime soon. But uh, Matt, what else do we have for today? Well, I don't think there's much else to say uh, except you can head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for all things real estate related, including this episode summary and past episodes and the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, which, by the way, was that last week? Last Peter week, Lu- Lu- Peter Luong. Peter Luong. Yeah. Uh, Incredible that, episode. Not the most recent, second most recent episode. Second most recent. I, I had the, uh, he's going to, he, I hope we're trying to get him to come on our show. Yeah. Um, man, just an impressive, impressive real estate investor. That yeah, you know sure. I, what, what I loved about that episode when when he talked about how his dad just made his first investment in real estate that coincidentally had nothing to do with Peter's success, which is funny, hey, it, right? It, I mean, P- Peter is his first investment was a pre-construction condo in Vancouver, and right. I think the tally right now in terms of commercial real estate he owns in England is forty-six properties, just in England, just alone. in England, let alone Canada, the U.S., China and a number of other areas that he's investing. I mean, he's truly a global investor and he has scaled incredibly quickly and impressively. So check so that impressive. out for sure. And such a humble, just just good guy. Check that out on Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. It's on the site, vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. You know what else is on the site, Adam? What's that? The Livewire. This is our weekly mailer where you get stats before anyone else, sales ratios in sub-markets, which is very, very important in a market uh, like today's yes. and every market really. You also get deal of the month, VIP presale access. There's basically no reason you shouldn't be on the live wire. And of course, Adam, we also have private client services. Yeah, Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. It's the best way to look for real estate out there. I love it right now because monitoring the market is so important and so key to understanding where we are. And you get to see those sold prices. And that really is the key, right? To see if there's a discrepancy between list and sale price and start to see kind of what's changing and and where's changing. So what a great time to be monitoring the market. And Matt, the other thing I'm going to say right now is because we have the t-shirts are in. We got 200 shirts. We're going to be giving away a lot of shirts. Right now, for the next five reviews, you can review us either on Google. Vancouver oh, you're doing, Real a, you're doing a Beasley. I'm doing, I'm doing it doing, right now. You're doing a Larry Beasley. For the next five reviews that come up on our Google Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, our, our Google reviews, or on our iTunes or Spotify, we'll just, we'll just pick randomly. We'll give away some shirts. 
Sounds good to me. That's exciting. Yeah. That's so if you, if you like the show, head over and uh, yeah, give us a review on the platform that you listen. Let us know that you gave us a review and we'll add you to the list. And uh, yeah, we'll get some shirts out to some people. Sounds good. And uh, one last thing, Adam, last week's episode, Get Your Home Sold for Top Dollar Now was a very popular episode. Yes. A lot of people reached out for the sold checklist. The plan, the sold the plan. The sold plan. And a lot of people found that useful. So if you haven't listened or you're looking for more information, you can always reach out there. Try me at 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And if you uh, do a review and you want a shirt, info, Kokomo line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Yeah, we want to see all of the VREP community wearing the shirts. So uh, yeah, we're going to be quite generous with these. So stay tuned and follow us on Instagram at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Have a great week, guys. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.